Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. This is one of over a thousand programs we've had since the pandemic began. Um, you can find a lot of them on YouTube, um, and if not there, on our podcast. Tonight we have John King, uh, the author of Portal, uh, sort of the history of San Francisco through the eyes of the Ferry Building right down the street here, which you all know from coming here. Uh, a very fascinating history and lots of San Francisco details. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. And as I said earlier, if you have any questions, you can either ask them live or with cards, your choice. So, John, welcome to the Commonwealth Thank Club. you. Thanks. Thank you. What surprised me about the book uh, was how early the idea for, you know, the fairies in, the, in a portal uh, came about. I mean, the early part of San Francisco, from what I understand, and all these people came on boats for the gold rush, and then the boats, there were too many boats, and they sunk them. <laughs> and that's, that's part, of, part of the base uh, for that whole area. But why don't you just tell how soon into our history, when we're just a tiny little city, sure. uh, that they started talking about this? Sure. Thank you, George. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you all for being here on a Monday night. That's very flattering. And I am the Chronicle's urban design critic. Before that, I was a suburban columnist. Before that, I covered City Hall under Mayor Jordan and Mayor Brown. So I've kind of found my way into this. And when I came up for the when I came up with the idea for the book, I kind of realized once I was actually working on it, that I couldn't just start with the construction of the ferry building, but there had to be the context of where it came from in terms of just the culture and the aspirations of the city. So I did a lot more kind of research on 19th century San Francisco than I had done in all the years of my life before that. And I was startled to learn you had... I'm going to get the exact figures wrong, but you had ferries coming into San Francisco from as early as about 1853. Because, you know, San Francisco was just a pretty lazy hamlet on the water. Then the gold rush hit. This became the protocol for the gold rush. And not just where people pulled in and then kept going, but it became the whole mercantile center and everything like that. But so you very quickly had people living in Benicia, in Marin, in you know Alameda County, and they'd all be coming in. And you know one of the things that's very startling is just how much of the San Francisco shoreline is an act of fiction. That the way that the the way that the city grew east, the downtown, the northeast quadrant grew east, was that the city of San Francisco very quickly gave developers, entrepreneurs, whoever, I, mean, I don't know what the term would have been in 1850 or 1851, but essentially uh, you can just build a wharf straight out into the water and then you can build stuff along it. So you had this Venice-like thing of just all these piers sticking out into the water all these ha buildings built haphazardly along the piers on more piers and piles. And within the first few years of the city, it burned down several times. Uh, and finally, I think it was about 1853 or so, one fire was so destructive and just wiped things out so utterly that it was, we need to do this a little more methodically. So then the city, which was happy to make money from it, started selling the kind of tidal land along the existing shoreline and said, here are all these blocks that don't exist. You can buy them and fill them in. And you just give us the money and we'll be real happy about that. So it was growing very haphazardly. If you look at maps of the skyline, uh, the skyline, if you look at maps of the shoreline in 1860, 1865, whatever, the shoreline of San Francisco is this little jagged thing that just kind of goes down like a stepladder into the water and then back around Market Street back into the bay or back into the city. 
And there were about six different wharf operators at the time. The ferry system was just any independent guy who had a boat or a few boats and had a pier he could land on on this side of the bay as well as leave from somewhere else on the bay. And then the wharf, most of the wharf operators got together. They told the city, this is no way to build a big city shoreline. And they were right. Mm-hmm. And they said, so we'll do it. And all we want in return is to be given the land free until infinity and not pay any charges on it. And the city said, that sounds good. <laughs> and the state legislature said, sure, that sounds fine. And the governor who was governor two years, and I don't remember his name, vetoed it, saying maybe that's not the best way to do it. And that ended up to the state taking the port of San Francisco from the city and saying, we now control the shoreline, which in a way was a very early use of the Public Trust Act, though not framed that way. And so then... What you saw in the 1860s and early 1870s was the realization we need to methodically create a shoreline. And what it essentially came down to in about 1875 was a smart young engineer just drawing a curve on a map and devising a super simple system where you you dig a trench, you dump rocks in, you make a crude pyramid, you tap, cap it off with concrete, and you've now got a seawall. And so it was filled in piece by piece, moving down. It took about 30 years in all. And that is the seawall we still have today. That's what protects certainly this building, but also all the Embarcadero Center, the Mira Tower, the Gap Tower, all these towers within a few blocks of the current shoreline. That is the constructed reality that the last section of the book wrestles with. Now, why didn't they build on the land that was already there? I mean, there's hills. Is that the only reason? You know, again, one of the beauties of the book were names I knew from kind of dusty plaques in the city or, you know, things like that. But the reason were going out was as crazy as that sounds. It was easier than going inland because there was Russian Hill, there was Knob Hill. The sand dunes along Market Street were about 90 feet high at the time. I mean, mm. it was just, it, it, it's an un, inconceivable. It's, I, I spent, I grew up in Walnut Creek, but spent seven years in Boston. And it's kind of like that. You look at the original maps and you just can't fathom this is what the city once was. Mm-hmm. But so then... The cable car was invented, and Arthur Halliday created the cable car, and then it was possible to grow inward. You know, you needed the cable car to get up the hills and then mm-hmm. over the hills. But even so, that by then, the, the commercial pattern of the city was so concentrated on the east that you didn't have, and probably structurally it would have been difficult, you didn't have towers going willy-nilly over the hills. Um, commercial towers. It was more, that's where the housing went. You tell the story, which some people may be familiar with, but others not, about Halliday and his invention of the cable cars. And you you mentioned that he was worked on cable for a totally different purpose uh, before that. And I found that interesting. And also why that was such a problem for the horses. So. Yeah, it's... Um, so Halliday, he was Scottish. And he was a teenager, and he and his father came here to pursue the gold rush. It's kind of like coming in and being a young entrepreneur because San Francisco is the city of AI, and you're going to make your fortune. Mm -hmm. And so they came over. After a few years, the father gave up and went back to Scotland. But Halliday uh, stayed in the gold country. And the fortune he made was not by gold, but by... He had a real bent as an engineer that he kind of discovered just being there. And he created a convenient cable system so that the pot filled with water and ore and things like that could easily be moved back and forth. And so he created this real simple system. He's made his fortune. He comes back to San Francisco. He's manufacturing these. 
And then he just watches, you know, there were people living on Russian Hill and Knob Hill. And so you did have streets and you had horses going up those streets, pulling loads. And you often had horses pulling the loads just collapse and fall over. You know, they they very well might die. The cargo very well might head right back to the bottom. And so he just kept testing it, elongating the system, and got the okay from the city to build a test on, I think it was on Clay Street, but a not very much used block or a few blocks that did exist on Knob Hill. And so he put the thing in and then he and a few financial backers went out to test it and see if it would work. And it it was at the top and it was going to go down, I think. And um, the operator was scared of doing it. Mm-hmm. He just was too nervous, like kind of looking at the heights and, gee, I've seen what happened to the horses. What if it happened to me? <laughs> and so Halliday took the took the controls and he made it work, got down to the bottom. They all helped him head back up. And that became the cable car system that we revere today. No. Oh. So and and that got put in in the what 1870s or 18- it, yes, I think it I think it started about 1873 or 4 was his test. So by the mid 1870s that's when you started to kind of unleash this, which is about the same time the methodical seawall started getting built. So uh, before the, so we're talking about 25 years basically from the gold rush until this period of time in which Things were just moving out helter-skelter in the other direction. Exactly. And then both of those things started to shape our future city. Okay. So um, the ferry building. So there was just there, there was no set ferry building. But once the seawall was up. You know, it, the first ferry building, which was called the Ferry House, and I don't know quite how this worked. You know, you can do all the research for a book and go to all the primary sources and you still can't figure it out. The ferry building basically was where, I'm sorry, the ferry house, the old one, which was just kind of a Wild West building front with some sheds behind it. That was pretty much where the ferry building is now, but a little to the north. I'm guessing it might be one of the reasons the built ferry building is slightly askew. It does not line up in a perfect perpendicular with Market Street, it's angled just a little bit. But um, one reason the ferry house was built in about 1878 was to consolidate the ferry operators so they could open up some of the northern area to get the seawall built. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's this weird version of the challenge that sea level rise is going to pose long term, which is this isn't a blank slate. If you're doing something here, you need to move what is there. Mm-hmm. So you had this ferry house built and it did the job okay, but the city kept growing. So it got less and less workable. It wasn't quite as close to Market Street and things in terms of its orientation. And then also San Francisco itself was growing and changing so much. Uh, what what initially interested me in the idea of the ferry building as a book, just over time seeing how it was in sync with today's city, was seeing how it was in sync with so many other eras of the city. And it always, in some ways, reflected the aspirations of the city at the time. And the construction of the ferry building in the 1890s was a city that wanted to let people know we're no longer the West, wild west boomtown. We're a big, legitimate, European-styled American city. I mean, uh, San Francisco was, I think, the eighth largest American city in terms of population in 1890. And, you know, so it was really this thing where we want to show we're a real city. And part of that included you were going to have a very fancy, civically important transportation depot, which in most cities, of course, was the train station. 
Here, it was the ferry depot because that's how almost everyone came into the city. Mm -hmm. you know, so it just kind of, that's how, you know, so the idea was we're not just going to build a, a terminal, we're going to build a civic monument. And uh, a lot of the descriptions that you use say how isolated people in San Francisco felt being surrounded by water um, and and that that was part of the whole idea well, let's let's do a ferry building, but it was also supposed to be a railroad terminus too. In, in the end, right at the beginning. Oh, it it was. Yeah. I mean, it, if you if you were in Boston and you wanted to come see San Francisco, or you were in New York, you took the train across the country, um, and then when you got to Oakland, you I think it, you're probably on Southern Pacific, or it ended up on Southern Pacific, and I think you went out on the Oakland Mole, which jutted several miles into the bay, kind of where the lower portion of the east span of the Bay Bridge is now. And then you got on the ferry and went across. So it was you bought a you bought a train ticket to San Francisco mm -hmm. from the East Coast, and that's just how it ended up. So, how large was San Francisco at the time when it was in in like the eighteen nineties before the ferry building was mm -hmm. built? But when they were talking about being a big city, big civic thing. And you, you mentioned, I think, the Chicago World's Fair, isn't that, in 1893, that kind of inspired people to, yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting. The architect of the ferry building was Arthur Page Brown, A. Page Brown, he was known. And he was only in his early, mid-30s. He was a young guy, but very well-connected, very talented, created a very good firm. He was one of the first out-of-town architects to come and kind of leave a mark. And he worked, for those of you who are architecture buffs, he worked for McKim, Mead & White in New York mm. before starting his own firm. So he was, his early formative years were this very European-inspired classicism that had a kind of uniquely American bent to it. And so he came out and it was just really in tune with this city that had this huge population, but didn't really have civic monuments of sort. Um, there's a fascinating, there's very little that Brown left behind in terms of written work or anything to get a real vocal insight into him. But he wrote a piece on San Francisco architecture, I think in 1894, while the foundation for the ferry building was being built. And he wrote about what a how good it would be for the city if there was a big earthquake that cleared the landscape so the kind of buildings could be built that the city needed. And they'd be, you know, Spanish revival and they'd be kind of good, simple cla classical materials and things like that. I was wondering who we had to blame for that earthquake. It's he, really he must have, he must have had a you know an in, an in with the people above or what? It's really crazy. <laughs> it's it's really crazy to read yeah, that. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. Twelve years before the actual thing. Yeah, because in a way, what he described is what happened. Yeah, but but so he just you know the whole there was so much there was always so much development going in on in San Francisco. Things would burn down. I just learned today for a piece I'm doing that'll run in the next week or so. Uh, this is hardly. A big discovery, but the flood building was built in place of a building almost as big that burned down in mm -hmm. like 1898. And the owner of the building didn't have any insurance. Yeah. So he just sold the bare lot to the flood family and they took it from there. But, um, you know, you had things like that coming down. You had the whole growth engine of late 19th century America, which is okay, that four-story building was built five years ago, but we're a bigger city now, so tear it down and build an eight-story building, and so on and so forth. Um, Brown also did the Crocker building, which was at Post and Montgomery and Market. It was about 12 stories, gorgeous building, and it was the tallest, biggest office building in the city when it was built, like around... Nine, um, around 1892 or so, you know, so it's just, it was a city growing as fast as it could and it needed a good depot to strengthen the connection and the ease of getting from San Francisco everywhere else. This isn't part of your book, but um, the, the, one of the reasons that 
taller buildings were not done earlier is because there were no elevators, right? So, so when were the elevator invented? Maybe I mean, something like the 1860s or something like that. Yeah, but it, it, it kept getting better. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I read a piece or two on the Crocker building when it went up and some of the other buildings that Brown worked on. And it always mentioned the elevator yeah. as a real kind of like, and, and not just, oh, and we have elevators, but we have this elevator and it travels this speed and it can go, it's noiseless and it's right, this, right, it's right. that. Yeah. Top of the line. Exactly. The Mercedes of elevators. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, you, you just mentioned, uh, which answered the question I was going to ask, that the 12-story building in 18, early 1890s was the tallest building in San Francisco which is not unlike most cities except right. for maybe New York City where they were starting to go up a little right. bit higher with, with the, the elevators on the rock, the bedrock. Is there bedrock here in San Francisco? Where does it start versus the, the, all those piles? You know, because it's kind of hard to build a huge sure. building on the piles. Yeah, the the bedrock starts... The bedrock starts where the original shoreline ended, and even that, you still have to go down to hit the pile, to hit the bedrock... Yeah, San Francisco, that's a good point because for the longest time, you were kind of limited just by how much you could, how far you could go down. Despite the drama around the Millennium Tower, most of the really tall buildings near the water, um, up until, you know, the last few years, were not built to go down to bedrock. Mm -hmm. They just aren't. The, you know, 350, uh, 350 Mission Street, which opened about 2015, 2016, just before the Millennium Towers problems became known, mm -hmm. that doesn't go down to bedrock. You know, most most of the buildings in that area just do not because engineers would argue there's an equally sound way of doing it, which is just you dig a big hole and then you drop the building in and the idea is the the weight of the building kind of equals pulled pulled away weight of the dirt and muck and everything. Mm -hmm. And then the building takes a while to settle. And then once it settles, it's there. Mm -hmm. And as one engineer told me very off the record was just the problem with the millennium tower is it didn't stop settling. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> his, his buildings, they did stop, you know, it's just, yeah. So it, it, but then once it was done, it was like, oh my gosh, you mean that's not down to bedrock? You mean this isn't down to bedrock? You mean that's not yeah. down to bedrock? Uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's definitely an interesting issue. We'll just put it that way. All right. So um, we're talking about the 1890s now, and people have been discussing a ferry building for a while. Why don't you say some of the, because there's a lot of politics involved. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, I'd, I've been, I mean, I covered uh, I covered City Hall when Willie Brown was mayor, and you know, certainly there were plenty of controversies then, and they go way back before. I mean, anyone who's followed San Francisco politics and any big city, uh, there's always a big battle around big infrastructure projects. And what I found interesting, and I go into it in one of the chapters, earlier chapters in the book is that the ferry building, you ran against a lot of the things that you see with high-speed rail or with the East Span or things like that. It's too expensive. It's not really safe. Do we really need it? Is the architect getting paid too much? <laughs> Are the politicians actually just kind of taking care of their buddies? I mean, you had San Francisco at the time had five five or six competing daily newspapers. So this was fodder for all of them. You had, you know, you had the kind of establishment side of San Francisco politics, which was synonymous with state politics. And then you had the more progressive side of city and state politics that was against Southern Pacific and against various things. And so you see all these battles playing out and, one of my favorite incidents in the book, I the image from the newspaper article was too just kind of rickety to put into a, a, a 21st century book. But mm -hmm. there was an article on how one of the many, many controversies was that the um, 
the contractors were the foundation, essentially the foundation, the ferry building, there are 5,700 piles totally submerged into the mud. And then each of those is topped by like kind of a box of concrete that then connects to catacomb-like arches. And then the whole thing is just a concrete map, mat. So the foundation, the ferry building is like a big, thick table that has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of chairs, uh, legs. You know, so that's what it was. And so inevitably, one of the newspapers with one of the political factions started saying that the contractors were on the take, that there were people who had seen them using subgrade concrete. And the governor of California, who was part of that faction, came down to San Francisco and then got on a little rowboat and went out with an axe and hit into the concrete and it just like kind of dissolved where he hit it. And he looked at it very worrisomely. And the paper that covered it got a big story out of it. Then the other newspapers had to write about this. But so um, the state called for hearings on this. And so then the Board of State Harbor Commissioners, the state agency that later became the Port Commission, they called their own study. And I don't know how many of you are contractors, but concrete takes a while to dry total. So when you read it in hindsight, it kind of feels like they knew where to go to hit something and go, look at this, it just dissolved. Mm -hmm. um, but it it was fodder for all sorts of political controversies mm -hmm. at the time. And was but it turned out that the concrete was just fine. The building's still, still there. there. So we're gonna we're gonna assume the concrete was okay. You know, it's just it's just crazy. It, yeah. Just how all these things go on and on. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a it's fun to one of the miracles to me about something like the ferry building is that it gets through all the politics of it. It's, first of all, it's an engineering feat, and then there's the politics of it. And I, I my best example or my, my favorite example of that kind of thing is the Pantheon building in Rome. The Pantheon building in Rome is very big, and it's been there for 2,000 years. And people say, it's still standing. That's a miracle. And I said, no, it, that's you know impressive. But what's a miracle is that every 50 years, there must have been a commission that was in charge of the Pantheon that decided it was worth it to try to keep it, even though it was getting too expensive to keep it. <laughs> you know, so that so that for 2,000 years, we're talking about 30 to 40 commissions, all of whom decided to try to keep it. And, and, and at times when Rome got down to 30,000 people in, in the Middle Ages and everything, everyone always decided to keep it. I find that to be amazing. And your, your book reminded me of that. Uh, because so many different times it, it was a big fight just to just to hold on to this. Yeah, the way the book is constructed very simply, it's three main sections. One is heyday, which is obvious. Mm. The ferry building gets built, and it's the busiest depot in the world outside of Charing Cross in London. Then the Bay Bridge gets built, and the Golden Gate Bridge get built, and it becomes an obsolete relic. And the second section of the book is relic. And it's a point when it was threatened with being torn down. Uh, something that fades into history. I'm going to be talking to a group later this week. And a lot of them are like 20 something entrepreneurs and things. And, um, you know, they were all born after the Embarcadero freeway was torn down. You know, so then during the relic period is this double deck freeway gets built that cuts off the ferry building and the whole waterfront from the rest of the city. The third section is rebirth, which kind of starts with the 89 earthquake and just looks at how the Embarcadero was brought back, the ferry building was brought back, and how the ferry building is so different in its functionality than it was in its heyday but you could argue it's as attuned to the city of 2003 when it opened as it was to the city of 1898 when it opened the first time. Uh, and then the last section of the book I call the unknown, and that's just looking at what comes next. But I, I mentioned that because 
with sea level rise, you know, looking long term, assuming the projections are anywhere close to accurate, there will be a real reckoning with the waterfront. Mm -hmm. And one thing the port has made clear, it's like your Pantheon committees, Mm -hmm. the ferry building has to remain. Mm -hmm. And the ferry building has to remain functioning. And we'll figure out how to do it, you know, which is different than what might happen to some of just the shed piers. And of course, they're going to have to keep the Commonwealth Club building now that we're here. They've got to raise the embarcadero <laughs> and that protects the Commonwealth Club. So uh, one of the things you, you, you say in that last part, as long as we're talking about it, is that there's a plan or at least an, an idea to, to raise that whole, it's like this table, mm-hmm. it's all in the mud. And how could they how could they raise the table or put more cement on top? Right. Of yeah, on top of the table or that's what's being studied right now. And it, it was tricky writing this book because this is not a book that is settled history. You know, it, Arthur Page Brown and the governor coming down with the axe from Sacramento, that's history, period. You know, it's all done. You can interpret it, but it's there. Uh what happens in the era of sea level rise is current news. Mm-hmm. And I was worried as I was finishing the text and W.W. W. Norton was prepared to shift over to the copy editor stage. I actually talked to someone at the port who's real involved with all the sea level rise things. And I said, so about how long is it going to take your next batch of studies to come out? And he said, oh, about a year or so. And it's like, I was just thinking, good, because that's about, my book comes out in about 10 months, so I'm <laughs> <laughs> if a book came out in the week before there was an article saying ferry building to be demolished by the port, <laughs> it would have required a very quick postscript. Um, but there is a study the port is doing right now that it has not shown me, it has not shown the public, that is just a pure engineering feasibility study of if we choose to lift the ferry building up is it doable structurally? And if it is doable structurally, is it doable in a way that would allow the building to continue functioning and being inhabited while it was going on? Mm-hmm. And I have to think the answer to the second is no, mm-hmm. but i that's hardly privy information. But I mean, it's this real challenge of, it's not a blank slate. It's not that, kind of, okay, can we raise this building? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because an engineer will say, well, you could. You could find ways to jack it up, Mm -hmm. which boggles my mind. But, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. that or tie a lot of helium balloons to the top. (laughs) Inflate them all at once. Let them go. Uh, You know, but then it does become, this is a place that has dozens of businesses in it. It has several hundred thousand square feet of office space in it. It's a revenue generator for the port. There's a developer who has a 60-year master lease on the ferry building. Mm -hmm. There are lots of local entrepreneurial tenants who have space in the building. You know, so it just gets, there's kind of like, can you do it in the abstract? And can you do it in terms of the human economic cost? But then there's also this conviction you can't not do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that becomes: do you build a breakwater? Do you know? There, there. That's what's being wrestled with. Theoretically, in the next month to two months, the Army Corps of Engineers releases its initial plan on how do we deal with floods along the bay going out a hundred years, and of course, floods going out a hundred years are tied to sea level rise projections. Mm -hmm. And theoretically, I mean, there have been plenty of studies about sea level rise projections. Any of you following the news know that. But this will be different because it'll say, here are the, what we see as the credible engineering options. Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting, you mentioned the Corps of Engineers. Uh, There was that group, uh, Save the Bay, um, that the Army Corps of Engineers after World War II, I think, that came up with a plan that would have made the bay about one-third the size that it is now. I mean, fill in everything that was 12 feet uh, or less uh, deep so that all that land would be used and the bay would be that much smaller. That 
didn't come to pass. I was I was thinking about that when I was reading your book because it's yeah. another big plan for the Bay Area that that at least we now think fortunately didn't happen. So it, it's just so fascinating looking at the history of the ferry building and the Embarcadero. Just seeing the changes in accepted conventional wisdom and coming out of World War II, there was such a kind of clinical militaristic structure to the notion of how do you tackle urban problems. And it led to so many problems like just really destructive urban renewal. It led to Embarcadero freeway type structures where the whole idea is how do you get efficiently from point A to point B. Uh, but also that plan, the Army Corps plan was simply, we need a lot of land in the Bay Area, and there is a lot of shallow water and tidal flats, and you can fill those in. Mm-hmm. So, so, which was kind of the thinking back in the 1873, mm-hmm. which is just go as far out as you can until the water's too shallow, the water's too deep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the Army Corps plan, and there was a private guy who got studied by the Army Corps, the rebar plan, which really helped bring things like Save the Bay into existence, um, that really just looked at, like, you know, basically the San Mateo, I'm sorry, the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge, that could pretty much be where you put a dam Mm -hmm. just to kind of delineate and you just fill everything into the north of it and to the south that's pretty deep enough to keep some shipping going mm-hmm. i mean it's just nuts when you look at it but in a certain mindset it makes sense so let's uh, back up a little bit to the to the time when uh, like i said the right after the war um and this whole idea about those double-decker highways that we're going to Change San Francisco, and certainly changed lots of cities across the country, um, and uh, the sort of utilitarian uh, attitude towards it, and that there was a big revolt in San Francisco, which was not expected. Right. Yeah. And in a way, San Francisco was lucky because the first big double deck freeway done here was the Embarcadero Freeway that curled from the Bay Bridge, curled up, kind of came down Folsom Street, hit the Bay, and then went up as far as Broadway. And the idea was to keep it going and then kind of take a loop north of Telegraph Hill. And at some point kind of hit ground, I think as ground was going up or something, but be like just a surface highway heading to the Golden Gate Bridge. And the reason I say in a way it was fortunate is the first piece got built. And the only thing that was really elevated was you had the piece of um, the freeway coming off of the Bay Bridge. It kind of went over and connected to 101. There wasn't a lot of stuff there, and it was getting built a little after the Embarcadero Freeway, believe it or not. And then you had the Central Freeway that was going to be the start of this whole web of elevated freeways going out toward the ocean and north toward the Go- north toward the Golden Gate Bridge and see and so you were having a lot of little neighborhood well first of all let me back up so that was really proposed in detail in the late 40s nobody really objected to it in any position of power Board of Supervisors embraced the plan in the early 50s. And when and then the city went to Sacramento because there was a lot of money to build freeways and said, we want the first one to be this Embarcadero freeway to, to start making this connection between the two bridges. And as far as planners at the time were concerned, this was just a highway going over industrial land. You had the industrial waterfront. So it was just going over blue-collar industrial land, and it makes it easy to get you know, north and things. When it went up, it was such a shock to the city psyche that people just realized the stakes involved. And it was interesting, the revolt against the Embarcadero Freeway, which was unsuccessful, obviously, started with the business classes. 
where you act even before construction started, you started to have people like the Chamber of Commerce, big downtown financiers, like, wait a second, what on earth are we actually agreeing to here? Mm And they didn't say stop it, but they said maybe you can move it a little this way or that way. But then once it was built, it became something everyone else in the city could point to. So if you're fighting a freeway in Glen Park, if you're fighting a freeway north of the Central Freeway, things like that, you could point and say, look what it did to the ferry building and the waterfront. We can't do it to our neighborhood, too. It became a very direct cause and effect. And so in a weird way, San Francisco was lucky that was the first one because the only, I mean, as much devastation as there was to the Western Edition, that urban renewal effort and all, other cities were much, much worse because there the city powers just headed, I hate to say it, they just headed for the low-income neighborhoods, often for the black neighborhoods or other ethnic groups that kind of, you know, were not desired, so to speak, and certainly had no voice of power at City Hall. And they were busy putting freeways through those things before they got downtown. So you had all this damage made before revolt started in those cities. Mm -hmm. Whereas San Francisco, you kind of started with this thing that instantly repudiated what everybody took for granted as what San Francisco should be and was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the ferry building played a big role in that because it, the, the double-decker went right in front of it and cut it off from the city. Yeah. And you had to, had to build tunnels to get under it or whatever to get to it. Or, yeah. But people weren't coming in on the ferry to come to work anymore. The ferry, by, by 19... Well, the ferry was brought back for the Golden Gate International Exposition to Treasure Island, although there was also a 12,000 space parking lot on Treasure Island. <laughs> so that that also took care of things. But there were there was ferry service. And then in World War II, when gasoline was being rationed, you had ferries going from the ferry building to like the Richmond shipyard and uh, the Marin shipyard, things like that. Uh, but then afterwards, you know, Pretty much from about 1946 on, Southern Pacific kept one ferry going back and forth over the bay that was still the last stop on the railroad, and that ended in 58. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it was... It just, could be, so it could be ignored, too, in a way. Exactly, except it was so visible. Mm-hmm. You, could, you know, if it had just been the base, it would have been easy to miss, but it was still the tower. Uh, Malvina Reynolds, who wrote the song... Well, the Tiki Tacky House's song, whatever the official name of it is, uh, she wrote a song attacking freeways specifically that got its world premiere at a Golden Gate Park rally against the proposed Panhandle Freeway that would have not been elevated, but it would have just cut through the park and turned the Panhandle into like kind of a submerged freeway cutting east to join the Central Freeway. And she had a line about, you know, the concrete monsters or whatever the song was called, you know, taking the ferry building out and the Embarcadero away from the city and all. It was just, it was just fascinating that, you know, that, that someone like that, a protest singer would know this, I can use this analogy and people will get it. Speaking of the analogy, you had a, there's a, a science, science fiction movie. Yeah, it like came it. from beneath the sea. Uh, it sounds like some people have seen it. Yeah, who's seen it? Anyway, okay. If I was if I was doing a reading, that's one section of the book I read because it's fun. It's, <laughs> it's not engineering minutia. Um, yeah, it was about. Again, this is the early fifties, so uh, the army's doing or the navy's doing H bomb testing in the Menendao Trench or whatever the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean is. And it infects an octopus that just grows and grows and grows. And the octopus head <laughs> heads east. Instead of heading west, it heads east to the Pacific shoreline, takes out a few boats along the way. People start paying attention, thinking this is a problem. It nears San Francisco. There's lots of attention to it. 
It tears down the Golden Gate Bridge. It comes into the water, lays waste to the waterfront, pulls down the ferry building, uh, slithers like if you know the the bulkhead, you know, the front buildings on these sheds, they're little shots of the big tentacles or whatever they're called coming through the bulkhead. And finally, it's kind of blown up. Uh, easy come, easy go. And and <laughs> so it was, I'm not a big fan of B-movie science fiction. Um, Her- I forget his first name, but Harry Hausen yeah. Yeah, was, the, was the special effects guy. So it's revered among B-movie special effects historians. Uh, one thing that interested me is in the trailer, it's showing some of the good stuff, you know, since you want to get people to buy a ticket. And it has a little quick, like a quick screenshot of Golden Gate Bridge and splashed across it are letters, Golden Gate Bridge destroyed or whatever. And yeah. then there's one showing the ferry building with the big arm of the octopus wrapped around it, starting to pull it over. And it's just buildings topple. <laughs> and another sub-theme of the book is the whole notion of urban iconography. And it was an interesting shift that by the 50s, if you're making a B-movie horror, if you're making yeah, a B-movie horror flick, you figure your audiences know what the Golden Gate Bridge is, mm-hmm. but you don't know nationally what the ferry building is. Mm-hmm. Whereas if somehow the movie had been made in 1905, it probably would have said ferry building top. So this is San Francisco's answer to King Kong and the Exactly. <laughs> not, not as many sequels have been made. <laughs> so we we'll go from the octopus to Diane Feinstein. Uh, so she was the mayor uh, during some of these negotiations and she took one side and then switched or suddenly became very interested in it it's it's fascinating, you know, um Supervisor, then mayor, then Senator Feinstein has such a political lineage that we tend to kind of, you know, when she died earlier this year, the focus was on her time as senator, the horrors of Dan White killing George Moscone and Harvey Milk. Um, I mean, if a, Feinstein ran for mayor several times before she was elected, she was elected as a supervisor in the early 70s. And from the time she took office, she was one of those San Franciscans who wanted to see the Embarcadero Freeway come down. And I've got a quote of her, I think it's from 71, it might be 73, but I mean, very early in her campaign. Uh, I'm sorry, very early in her term as supervisor, where she's quoted saying, I'm going to fight the Embarcadero Freeway if I have to go gray in the process. And the casual sexism of the time, it's, you know, unquote, you know, the carefully coiffed Mrs. Feinstein said, bobbing her black locks or something. (laughs) But, you know, but it's so it's like that early she was saying, this is not what San Francisco should have. It's something that, she kept pushing, and then when she became mayor, she kept pushing the idea amid everything else going on in San Francisco in the late 70s and the early 80s. And she did an incredible job marshalling support, pulling together all these different groups opposed to it, got state agencies on board, got the feds to say, we'll chip in some money and things. Basically worked out a straight-faced argument that we could do this at a neutral cost. We'll take it down. We'll put in a six-lane surface boulevard, a lot like what eventually got built. And this can handle the same traffic that the Bay Bridge traffic handles. We can make this work. It will work. And the Board of Supervisors signed off almost unanimously in, I think, 85 or very early 86, and one supervisor in particular, uh, Richard Hungisto, was fighting it. And he was fighting it for that 1980s reason, which is this is a giveaway to developers. If you tear this thing down, it's just going to let towers flood the waterfront. And he decided, and he certainly was an ambitious politician, he 
took a measure to the ballot that just very simply said, do you support tearing down the Embarcadero Freeway? And Feinstein and the other supervisors and all the the Sierra Club, an incredible cross-section of political groups joined together on another measure that said, do you support the construction of a surface boulevard landscaped with green space and public access in replacing the current L- you know, so you have this very simple, do you want to tear down the road you use to get downtown? Or, you know, this much text kind of going into the really, doesn't this sound beautiful? And voters overwhelmingly rejected the idea of taking down the Embarcadero Freeway. And this was 1986. I mean, the, the building is tied into all sorts of weird strands of history. And Feinstein afterwards just said, I give up. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was very happy when the earthquake of 1989 <laughs> intervened. And even though it was her successor, Mayor Art Agnos, who led the push that time, she was very happy to be at the ceremony when demolition started. And she said it, it just needed that push from Mother Nature. <laughs> Quite a big push. Yes. <laughs> so a lot of as as often happens a lot of plans were made and failed and everything like that and then there was something happened that made it now obvious what we have to do exactly. about this um and one of the reasons that even though there was no i mean there was damage but there was no loss of life or anything here but the over in oakland uh there was a similar right. highway that that caused a lot of loss of life at that, so yeah the cypress freeway far and away the worst most horrible loss of life in the Loma Prieta earthquake was the Cypress Freeway. It was a double-deck concrete viaduct from the late 50s, and it just collapsed in on itself. And more than 100 people were killed. It was just a horrifying scene. Hmm. And the the Embarcadero Freeway had relatively little damage, but it had plenty of cracks in it. You had engineers say, you know, another few seconds and it could have come down. There was a fascinating scene from a newspaper at the time that I have in the book where, you know, the Loma Prieta hit and there's like a head of a seismic commission in Sacramento. He comes down and he goes underneath the Embarcadero Freeway to kind of document the impacts and take photographs. And after just a minute or two, police told him he had to get out because it was just seen as so we don't know what's going to happen next. Um, you know, as soon as cars got off it after the earthquake, it was it was closed off. And studies later, as with all good thorough bureaucratic studies, by the time it was done, the freeway was already gone. <laughs> uh, you know, they said it is the same structure as the Cypress Freeway. However, it had so many off ramps on it in such a concentrated scene that you had this kind of lateral reinforcement, whereas the Cypress Freeway, which was kind of cutting through a much larger swath of West Oakland, the basic columns and the reinforcement of ramps didn't give it the lateral support. So it was it was just that odd of a twist is why one survived and one did. When I when I read your description of that from the report, I thought flying buttresses. You know the the off ramps served as yeah, flying buttresses yeah. to hold up the highway. And that was not the idea. You know No, but, no, that wasn't yeah. the idea. <laughs> no, no, but it's just fascinating this yeah. whole different thing of just, well, we're serving downtown, so we better put some off ramps here and here and here. Right, right, right. I'm sure there were a whole bunch of groups saying we have to have an off ramp. Yes. Yeah. 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 So um the highway comes down um, that is in the way, and then people think about the ferry building again. So um, we're going to get to questions in just a little while, but I, we, we want to cover that period of time. You talked about the future already. So there's a, that, that piece of your book, you talk about plans for the ferry building and uh, what happened and what eventually, how it, how it yeah, there There had been a number of plans for the ferry building. How do we restore this thing? And there were portions very crudely re. Re- restored, um, essentially rebuilt in the 
late 50s, early 60s. But in the 70s and 80s, there was this real idea, we need to make the ferry building work again. The problem is there was a freeway there. And so any plan like how do we do this involved, we have to build parking garages right next to it. We need to do all sorts of weird things. And so they never made business sense. Once the freeway came down and the Embarcadero gets reopened and there were actually these plans that could be put into place that Feinstein's people had put together, you st- it became much easier to see we can reunite the city and the water that created the city, that gave the city a reason for being. So then by the late 90s, the Embarcaderos really started to come back, even though it was patchy, just having this promenade along it was magnetic. And so then when, whereas before it had been kind of shyster developed, not shyster, but pretty unqualified developers trying to make something happen there. You got four very good locally based developers, very good architects, and you got what got done now that brought the public access that's on the water side of the building that created, you know, the ground floor never looked anything like it did today. It was baggage storage areas and a post office and ticket booths and a, a, a few crude waiting rooms. And then the second floor facing the water was all waiting rooms. And then the big nave that ran down the middle had been chopped up so you couldn't realize there was a nave there. So all this really loving restoration got done. And as soon as it opened, it's like, this is great. It's like it never left. Mm, yeah. Except the food's better now. <laughs> now, there's a lot of great stories in the, uh, your book about all the different uh, food companies and what they did and how they got started. And it, it, We'll leave that all in the book because uh, maybe I think everybody would like to ask a couple of questions for this long history about the ferry building. Thanks so much. That was absolutely fascinating. Oh, thank you. Could you tell us what was happening to the ferry building just recently? The netting has finally come down. Yeah. Um, the last change I made to my book was to say scaffolding went up the, on the building. Um, basically, the building was being repainted. The The repainting started just before the pandemic. And then obviously, like everything in the pandemic, it hit pandemic time for a while. So the scaffolding was to repaint. Um, and I definitely had people complain to me, we like the blue better. Why did they change the color? In fact, when it was redone in the early 2000s, it was the color it is now. The paint didn't hold well and it kind of turned blue. But the thing is, with with a 125-year-old sandstone building, repainting the building isn't just repainting the building. It includes crack, patching all the cracks, resealing every conceivable place. So it was very, I'm a group, architectural resources group, ARG, their conservator division was really doing this painstaking work. So that's why it took as long as it did. But basically it was just repainting. It looks great. It does look great. Got it done just in time for APEC. I'm sure there was o- <laughs> I'm sure there was overtime the last weekend. <laughs> Do you have any stories around the clock on the ferry building? I, you know, the book, I don't really, it's funny. I mean, what I wanted to do with this book was write a book about the building, but also write about, write a book about all you can see through the building. So a lot of the real good arcana kind of fell aside. So I don't have that much on the clock in the book. I went up into the tower. I looked at this super cool old, the clock mechanism. Um, and, you know, there is a, clock keeping consultant who comes in to make sure it's all set and things like that. But I did not. Uh, so I don't really have anything other than it's super cool when you're up there. It was designed. You, you mentioned though that the original design for the clock tower came from someplace in Europe. Oh, the, the tower is a tower was the Seville um, cathedral in Spain. Yeah. Although, you know, one could argue it's not that different than, than the St. Mark's Tower in Venice or any yeah. other narrow clock tower. Yeah. But, but that was, Sevilla was the kind of the official inspiration. Right. Yes. 
probably too capricious an idea, but has there ever been serious consideration to painting that octopus back on the clock tower? <laughs> well, who knows? Some of those some of those blow ups for Thanksgiving were so popular. Maybe there'll be a two hundred foot tall octopus blow up that could be wrapped around for the next anniversary that comes up. Um, fascinating discussion. Thanks for that. Uh, two questions. Do you have any information on the, the crews that actually built it? Who were they? Were the the Irish, the Chinese? Do you know? Oh, it. I know that the the final layer were Italians, Italian contractors who did like the tile work and things. Right. I don't know that much. Um, it was not Chinese laborers. But it's funny, there was not that much writing about it, because by then there was so much construction going on in the city mm -hmm. that it's just kind of mentioned so-and-so company will do the contracting. Uh, but it was a little past the real heroic feats of the of the builders, right. the actual laborers. Right. And the second question I have is we were walking by it this evening, and there was an image of a, um, what was it, um, the phoenix projected onto the facade. Mm -hmm. And I read recently that that is uh, the bird of San Francisco. Is that correct? And would there be a reason why the well, the, the whole the, the connect? I don't know if it's the official bird. I kind of doubt it, but I could be wrong. <laughs> no, it is on the seal. There we go. That's you can't trust journalists. <laughs> but the whole but the reason the phoenix is embraced is because of rising after the 1906 earthquake. So that's the powerful symbol of the phoenix. Next question. What's the next phase of the ferry building as we talk about things like electric ferries and new tra water transportation and so on? Will it become a portal once again? Well, yeah, it, it's I mean, in, in a ways it it is a portal in terms of offering an alternative. And you get about five million ferry passengers now each year. Um, that's probably 2019 numbers. As we all know, you can't use annual numbers anymore. Uh, it will never be what it was. I mean, it's about five, 5 million a year. That's about one-tenth what it was. I do think, though, you know, that the region's been very smart in stressing the importance of water transportation. You know, in, in the heyday of the building, there were like seven ferry gates that projected out from the building, like gates at an airport project out from the, the main structure. And those are all gone. So now you pull off, you get off the ferry building, you step onto, I was going to say land, but you step onto concrete. So there there will never be ferries coming back into the ferry building. But, you know, you, you can imagine a future where there are two or three more of the ferry gates built behind the building. And it'll just... It's a, it's a very key spot because, you know, part of the Bay Bridge... Swung down in 1989. You know, you never know what nature's going to deal out. So uh, I moved to Marin in 2008 and I've been taking the ferry into work, except for the period during the pandemic. Right. And I love it. I love going through there and walking out. And, you know, you know, I used to work at Salesforce, so it was a quick, quick walk there. But I've recently been taking the ferry back into the city and uh, from Larkspur. And I honestly feel like at high tide, that walk down to the promenade from the boat has gotten steeper. So do you have a sense of like, has the water raised, how much the water is raised, you know, during that period? You know, for all the projections, there's no, there's no real way of quantifying that it has. Um, different times of year, it's much different, you know, and in, in, in the, especially like right now, the, the kind of the, the winter quarter, you know, you've got king tides, like for a few days each month, which are the extreme high tides. And at those, they already lap over at Pier 14 and a little bit around Pier 5. Although it's more kind of, ooh, this is fun. You can put your feet in it rather than, you know, here come the waves. Uh, but having said that, there are times of year where it is higher. And then big thing about sea level rise is not just that the water will quietly go like this but it's exacerbated by storms, by wind. Something like El Nino can cause the water to expand just a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then that makes something like a king tides bigger. So it, 
you know, it could be you're sensitive, but also it could be the time you're doing it, you don't do it as much. So it becomes less of the daily thing and a bit more of experiencing it. In your book, you mentioned um, that the expectation for the next, by the year 2100 is, I think, seven inches, right? Oh, no. Um, uh, more than the, the, high, the high scientifically vetted projection mm-hmm. as of uh, 2018, the state supposedly is going to be releasing a new one a few weeks ago. So uh, <laughs> it is about seven feet, you know, that. It, it, it's kind of for the projection through the end of the century Century, from the state working with various very credible scientific groups is somewhere between, you know, like 1.8 feet to 7 feet. And it gets tied into so many things about emission levels and all. And so the middle piece is about a three and a half to four feet, mm-hmm. um, you know, but conceivably it's higher, much higher than that. How much of San Francisco, I mean, the Embarcadero is right. Like you said, it's already it already comes up in in uh, King Tides onto the water. How much would would be affected? We there have been some good studies early in the pandemic. Uh, the Metropolitan Transportation Commission and the BCDC, the Bay Conservation Development Commission, released a big projection for the bay that they'd been working on for years to really study the impacts. Basically take a map of a pre-landfill map. Hey, get a map of the Bay Area in 1848. And with the stronger projections, it starts looking real similar. So it's a good thing we have those hills. Yes, very much so. (laughs) Can't get rid of that on on this. Uh, Any other questions? Um, Are you aware of any films or television shows that have been using the ferry building either in the background or as a character? Yes. Um, <laughs> I went into that some in the book. I would have loved to have gone into it a lot more. Um, there's a Jennifer Garner series right now streaming or a movie that mm-hmm. apparently she's an artist and her studio is in the ferry building, mm-hmm. which uh, is news to me. And there was a, is it Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist? There was, I'm not sure if the Zoe's right, but Extraordinary Playlist, it was one of these TV shows a few years ago that included characters singing and whatnot. Uh, And she supposedly worked in San Francisco. And I watched the pilot episode and she goes into the ferry building for coffee with a, and runs into the will he will they won't they mate in uh, <laughs> something that's so clearly not the ferry building it was pretty embarrassing but there's also a shot of them getting to know each other and it's on the embarcadero leaning against the railings and there's the ferry building right behind so it has become a modern day symbol again of you're setting a certain scene in San Francisco ferry building is a good symbol to do that Thank you very much, John. That was great. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you all for coming. And I'd like to thank uh, the Bernard Osher Foundation, uh, which supported this as part of the Great Lit Series here at the Commonwealth Club. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 121st year of enlightened discussion. Thanks a lot for coming. Really nice to see a good audience here. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.